Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there, welcome to today's program, Collaborative Problem Solving at School. Delighted to have you with me, whether you're joining in live or listening to the archives or downloading it through your iPod. I'm glad that you're with us. We've got a uh, wonderful special guest today going to be joined in a few minutes by Julie Benet, who's the principal at Mallets Bay School in Colchester, Vermont. Julie's become a good friend, um, and uh, Julie has in her previous and current position been somebody who's very been very enthusiastic about implementing the collaborative problem-solving approach in her school system and in her neck of the woods in Vermont. Um, and we're going to be talking today about the implications of collaborative problem solving for IEPs and FBAs and RTI and all those uh, acronyms that um, affect our lives on a daily basis in schools. So, uh, Julie, welcome to the program. Thanks, Russ. I'm glad that you were able to find the time in your busy schedule to do this. Absolutely. Uh, of course, it's school break, so that makes it a little easier. Vermont has its own unique calendar, so we're actually uh, on break this week. The rest of the world was on break last week, but right. there were people who were not on break last week, too. Yep. Well, then it's especially nice of you to join in, uh, yep. taking time out of your school break. So um, I did a talk uh, in uh, Massachusetts about a week and a half ago on the implications of collaborative problem solving for FBAs and IEPs and RTI and No Child Left Behind and all those things we have to deal with. Um, and one of the things I said is that if a school is using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems as its guide to understanding what's getting in the way for a behaviorally challenging student and as its guide to identifying what needs to be worked on, then the ALSIP, as it's known, should kind of write the goals section of the IEP for you and should write the FBA for you. But um, that's what I said. But maybe that's not what you'd say. What do you say? Yeah, I would always start with the ALSIP because I think it does yield the most interesting conversation. And I think that's one of the important things that you've reminded us a lot in your presentations, in your book, in the um, website, Lives in the Balance, the ALSEP, unlike the Achenbach or the Connors or some other checklists that we do with students, 
is not meant to be completed by people in isolation and then tabulated and comes up with a um, you know a score or a measure in which we can then attach a label and think that we have a cure. Instead, it opens a conversation so that we can really begin to um, dig into how this young individual is coping with the environments that we've created and asked this this person to be in. So I think that's the important thing to remember is that from the conversation, including the conversations that we have with the, with the child or the student, um, is where we really begin to figure out um, what an FBA might help us figure out because an FBA helps us figure out the function of the behavior. But um, it's always a little more complex than that. And so I think the ALSUP helps us to come to the table with some of the multiple pathways that might be affecting this kid in our minds. Does it write the goal for itself? Depends on the software you're using, and that was something you and I touched base on briefly when I was in Vermont. So let's talk about function for a few minutes, because function has a lot to do with, first of all, the FBA. Function, our definition of function has a great deal to do with what we think this kid needs from us, what his behavior is about. And the most common use of the word function these days, the synonym is working. The behavior is working. And this is right. extremely commonplace in schools. How is the behavior working? It's working to help the kid get, escape, and avoid. Right. And that's basically almost par for the course what people say. What I've been saying lately is don't stop at working because while it may be true, he is in some narrow sense of the word getting, escaping, and avoiding. Simply saying that he's getting, escaping, and avoiding isn't a great revelation since we all get, escape, and avoid. (laughs) None of us is off the hook for getting, escaping, and avoiding. So saying that the behavior gets, escapes, and avoids really isn't telling us anything earth-shattering. The earth-shattering question is, why is he going about getting, escaping, and avoiding in such a maladaptive fashion? Right. If we stop it working, then all we've really said about him is something that we know to be true of all of us. So (laughs) what do you think? I think humans are pain-avoiding creatures. And and I think that when when the environment and the situations that we ask these young humans to be in causes pain, they do what a normal human will do. You seek pleasure and you avoid pain. We're wired that way. Mm -hmm. The question isn't why do they get escape or avoid. The question is why do do typically developing kids not do that? Right, right. What, What skills and habits and thought processes and self-regulation abilities do the typically developing little humans have that enable them to walk in a line, sit in your seat for a long time, raise your hand, engage appropriately in a social fashion, stick to a schedule. Those are hard things to do. And that's the part I think we forget about because I didn't start my career in public school. I started my career in child care where child care providers tend to try to make the environment fit the kid Mm. and that's harder to do in public school because the institution has its own demands so really looking take sometimes you just have to take a step back and say wait is the thing that we're asking them reasonable in the first place is that even are we even asking this 
person to do something that is within their um, zone of development? Can they even, is that, can we just maybe think about changing what it is we're asking them to do? And I've had those conversations with the ALSEP as well. Mm-hmm. So what I've been saying is that people need to not stop at working as the definition of function, but to change their definition of the F word. The collaborative problem-solving definition of function is that rather than helping the student get, escape, and avoid, it's communicating to us that the student doesn't have the skills to do it better. And that definition has tremendous ramifications for who we think this kid is, so the focus is on lagging skills rather than merely on getting, escaping, and avoiding. And the intervention, of course, is focused on helping them learn those skills and helping them solve the problems that are setting in motion their challenging episodes. And that's a very different-looking intervention. So a lot of this starts with the FBA, Shall we move on to IEPs? Yeah, but I want to know what the different F word is. Say that again? You said that the um, the ALSEP leads us to a different F word, and I was waiting to hear what your F word oh, was. The, the, the F, the, the function of, oh, no, it's the same F word, function. Yeah, it's just looking it's at function definition. in a different way. Yeah. Right. How do we uh, help that child be functional? Right. Um, as opposed to what is the function of the maladaptive behavior. The, our focus in collaborative problem solving is how do we help the kid be functional in this environment. Right. And why isn't the student being functional in the first place? And so the collaborative problem solving definition of function is merely that the, but importantly, that the behavior, rather than getting, escaping, and avoiding, communicates to us that the kid doesn't have the skills to do it better. Right. That so if, it, he, if he could, he would. If he could do well, he would do well. Yeah. Um, now on to IEPs. Okay. And here's the fascinating thing that I've been increasingly aware of lately. Not only are many FBAs sort of feel automated, IEPs are rather automated these days as well. Yep. I have one I brought home in case you wanted a little sample of how one software program writes a goal. Hmm. And I have not, I have to disclaimer here, I have not tried myself personally to log into this new software program that we're using, which I believe is not new for many um, other areas of our country because it aligns with Pearson's, um, Power School, which is a, a huge product, and, and Pearson is a huge company. So the particular um, tool that we that we're using now is called Goal View, and there's some efficiencies that can be realized because a lot of the student demographics that are kept in a school-wide information system automatically update and so forth with Goal View, and that cuts down, as you know, special education one of the one of the things that make it very difficult for people to want to choose that field is the amount of paperwork that needs to go along. So these are, I think, um, created, these software programs are created for a very valid reason, which is to see some efficiencies so that our educators can actually spend more time working with students and less time working with paper. 
Um, but the, a noble goal. Yeah, exactly. But so, for example, a basic reading goal for one of my students at this point reads like this. The student will read target words with automaticity and accuracy when given a list of third-grade high-level, high-frequency words as an individualized education plan goal, enabling him to progress in the curriculum in a small group setting with minimal assistance, using materials at his skill level with progress every period as implemented by the special education teacher, paraprofessional, from 70% to 100% as measured by the following assessments. Curriculum-based assessments by 1-12-2013. Got that? Whoa. That, and there's no way to write it differently. You have to choose the items from the menu, and it has to have all of those components in it. So let me ask you this. That clearly was an academic goal. Right. And Do you I think didn't... that it's easier to write academic goals that way than it is to write behavior goals that way? Is the yeah, problem I mean, that we're it, trying it, to write it, behavior goals that way too? Well, I I don't know how you could fit in a sensible behavior goal using some of the language that it's required. The, the software is requiring my teachers to use. I think it will be um, very interesting when I do read some. I haven't don't didn't have any in my hand that had the behavior goals that were written from the FBAs that were being done because right now we're using the LSUP primarily in a pre-referral team, which in Vermont is called the educational support team. And we're just now starting to introduce it to the special educators and talking about how that particular component of collaborative problem solving could be useful to them. But one of the first things they said was they're not sure how they can fit that in given the way the software restricts the kinds of language they can use when writing goals. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be interesting <laughs> to see how we can make goals that make sense, that um, address skill deficits, I mean, that goal that I just read you was meant to address a skill deficit for a particular student in the area of reading high-frequency words at a third-grade level. Once you got through all the verbiage, you could tell that that's what that was about. So how do we write a goal that addresses a skill deficit um, in flexible thinking or in self-regulation? You know, <laughs> some of the skills that we know are creating situations for kids that, um, that lead to the blow-ups and the meltdowns going to be interesting. Well, and it is. And not only that, in collaborative problem solving, in some instances, many in fact, the skills are actually taught rather indirectly by solving problems collaboratively. And so big question number two is, you know, when we're using the ALSIP to identify lagging skills, we are simultaneously using the ALSIP to identify examples of those lagging skills that are called unsolved problems. Right. And one question is whether unsolved problems can be, and there's no reason they shouldn't be able to be, but whether unsolved problems can be the focal point of the IEP uh, instead of lagging skills, or not instead of, in addition to lagging skills. And I can't think of any reason why that wouldn't happen, um, One of the areas that 
we were looking at it, and my speech-language pathologist who has um, been training in the social thinking curriculum, the social yep. cognition curriculum, and, okay. I, and I think you are aware of the work of Michelle garcia Winner in that area. She and I speak together frequently. Yeah, so one of the things that um, Deb Hamlin observed, she went to the presentation in Vermont, and, and um, everybody who went also had, a cop, had an opportunity to read Lost at School, Deb was observing that maybe one way sort of in to this process in regard to IEPs is through language because there are so many components of the un, um, the lagging skills and the unsolved problems that have to do with a, a child's ability to use language effectively to solve problems or to mediate their environment. So that's something that we're going to be, um, as we like to say in education, unpacking a little bit. <laughs> Did Got you know it. that? That's like the big education term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, that that's an interesting observation. I mean, I think it's still, for us, it's going to take some exploration, but that's one of the things I really like about collaborative problem solving is it invites people into the process to see how that's working and, and um, gives us that opportunity as professionals to really explore kind of a new way of thinking. Well, now, speaking of inviting people into the process... One of my educator pals in Maine, where there's also a lot of collaborative problem solving going on, um, was discussing with me the fact that collaborative problem solving, especially the empathy step, is where we're gathering information from the student about his or her concern or perspective on the unsolved problem we're working on with the student and we were discussing the fact that plan B where you're gathering information from the student in the empathy step would not only be something that you'd want to write into the IEP as the way to do business with the student but also something you'd want to be doing um, pre-IEP so as to actually make sure that the goals of your IEP are as informed as possible by the concern or perspective of the student the IEP is being written for, raising a very interesting question, because this is the way it often goes in schools. Often we adults anoint ourselves as expert um, on not only what's getting in the student's way, but also what's the best way to go about trying to help him. And we and we spend a lot of time, and we get like all these fairly well-paid people sitting around a table discussing it. And it's, when, you, when you're somebody that got used to using collaborative problem solving, I always feel like I'm sort of showing up and, and putting a bomb on the table by saying, so did anybody ask the kid? Like, wait hold on one second, did anybody maybe think about talking to the child about this? And that's just starting there is one way I've found to invite people into the process. Yes. But, yeah, it's it's very interesting, Ross. Kids, adults that I've worked with in schools tend to think, uh, my colleague Marty used to call, say that he called it the tissue paper kid syndrome, that you had to protect the kids from sort of the glaring reality that they might have an underdeveloped aspect of their of their growth. So they, they shouldn't really be told that they're going for extra reading help or, 
you know, somehow, somehow tiptoe around it that um, they have an IEP. When actually the opposite is much healthier and kids do much better when you right up front talk with them about their development, what areas you think they could use some support in and invite them into that conversation. Right. It's almost like um, we are leaving out of the equation the student for whom this is all being written for. Yeah, and and really young kids, like I've used this with kindergarten and first graders. My early ed um, folks who work with disabled preschoolers asked me about using this. And again, because we are actually, the empathy step is a lot about talking with the child, it becomes challenging when the child's language, actual verbal language abilities are pretty limited. But there's still sort of a guessing game you can play with little kids where you say, well, I'm wondering if this is happening or I'm wondering if that is happening, and you get that recognition reflex, and the kid will let you know when you got it. So even when they're pretty small, I've found a way to include a child in the process. Well, and as I've often been saying these days, you know, we shouldn't think of the information-gathering process as confined to verbal give-and-take. We gather information from infants, and they don't have the words to tell us what's going on, but right. they certainly do communicate with us. Right. And so um, I think you do collaborative problem solving, although not the way that is depicted in most videos that people will see on collaborative problem solving. Uh, you do collaborative problem solving with infants if you're thinking about information gathering as not limited to verbal give and take. Infants give us information all the time, and if we're mm -hmm. being responsive to them, then we are gathering that information and trying to be responsive to it. Yeah. Um, but what's amazing is, I mean, this, is, this always fascinates me, the IEP is a memorialization of not only what we've decided the student needs, and we often do that without input from the student, which means, in my opinion, our understanding of what the student needs is incomplete at best. Yeah. And it's a memorialization of what the student is going to get from us, incomplete at best, if we haven't thought about running this past the kid to actually get a sense of what the student needs. It's almost like you can't write an IEP unless you have a clear, you can't solve a problem unless you have a clear understanding of the student's concern or perspective on that problem. And as long as I'm on a roll here, one of the big features of collaborative problem solving is that we can't load the student up with so many things that the student is working on at once. Otherwise, we run the risk of so overloading us and the kid that we end up getting nothing at all. IEPs also tend to be documents in which we throw the kitchen sink at the student. Um, thoughts on any of that? Well... You asked me um, a few thoughts about RTI, which is another process that I'm very familiar with. And I actually think that the kitchen sink problem becomes much more evident when you're use, engaged in a response to instruction model, which has been sort of perverted around the country now, too. It's not being used in really productive ways in some places. But the concept, the original concept of a response to instruction is to attempt to teach a child something and then observe and talk with the child about whether or not what you've tried as an adult is working for the kid. And 
So one of the things that happens is we try these multiple interventions. We just had this example happen in our school. We were looking at a student whose progress had um, what we say flatlined or really, you know, stalled out almost like a plane ready to start nosediving. And we looked at what we had laid out for this student in terms of the numbers of interventions and the numbers of people working with this student. My assistant, who's very um, invested in collaborative problem solving, had a CPS session with the student. And this kid doesn't blow up or anything. This is a student who's um, a striving reader. And when invited to discuss her program, she was able to say, it's confusing. I have too many different people trying to help me, and I'm having trouble making sense of all of it. Mm-hmm. So that absolutely happens. I think what happens depressingly all too often with an IEP is we still divvy up what we got left. So no matter how far behind this kid or, is, or whatever kind of goal we're trying to set, if the special educator has available twice a week for 30 minutes, that's what goes in the IEP. It's not based on how long do you actually think it would take or what level of intensity will it actually take for this student to achieve that goal in the time frame we've agreed upon, but more it's based on what we got left in the schedule. Mm-hmm. So that's depressing. So both, that is depressing. Both things are true. It's true that we sometimes try too many things and we try to solve all the problems at once, and kids and adults get confused. The other thing is also true is that we we give them what we got, which is, you know, people will say an IEP is really the Ford, not the Cadillac. No disrespect meant to Fords. But. No, of course not. Nor Cadillacs. Julie, you've been implementing CPS in several buildings so far. Yep. How's it been going? What are, What troubles you run into? What successes are you having? I think what's hard is helping people make the leap from theory to practice and getting people, people will hear you speak, um, read the book, kind of make sense to them on some level, and then they sit down and they try to do it. And without somebody to reflect with maybe and, and kind of a group process where a bunch of people are trying it, um, and giving one another feedback, it's easy to revert to the known, which is, you know, looking for um, maybe an FBA or something that feels more comfortable to people. Mm-hmm. It is. It can be time-consuming up front, and it's hard to convince people or to remind them they're gonna spend time on this kid anyway. Like that's gonna happen. You're either gonna be chasing them around the halls trying to get him to a room where he's not going to be a danger to himself or others, or you're going to sit down for 45 minutes a couple times a week. Um, When I have been able to, when I've had somebody who says, yeah, I'm absolutely ready to try something different, what I try to do as an administrator is teach the other students so I can jump in the classroom. That gives me a chance to teach because I miss that, and it gives the teacher the freedom without having to take her planning time or his lunch to try to engage with the student in a more relaxed way. So I think there's definitely things administrators can do. We can set an example. We can. Um, I'm really pleased in this environment that I'm in now, the educational support team. My um, assistant is the chair of that. And she's very invested in, in making the ALSA part of that problem-solving 
um, process, and I have an SLP who's trained in social cognition. So it's fitting together really well. It's also a somewhat smaller school now and a more limited number of grades. I only have three, four, and five. My other school was pre-K to six. Mm-hmm. So it's just a lot more cats to herd. And here it feels a little more contained. So I think maybe in a setting where you had one or two other people that really understood were invested as you were in making it work, and as long as you as a principal are really literally ready to do anything um, to help teachers and other and team members work through a process, I think that's when it really works. What do you, what do you how do you deal with the time piece? Because as I've always been saying, time is the four letter word in schools when it comes to collaborative problem solving, yeah. as well as any other initiative that comes down the pike. People rightly want to know where they think, where we think they're going to fit this in to an already um, extremely busy schedule. Um, and I think you said it exactly right. It does require some time up front, but how do you persuade people that the time is worth it? Well, it dep- you know, for for us at Mouse Bay, um, we can both persuade and insist. You know, what you sort of... If you can take away some of the problems, I mean, looking at it with adults, collaboratively problem-solving with the teacher. So I get it that that's going to take a lot of your time. Here are some ways that I can free up some time for you. Um, You know, I can take your class or my assistant can take your class. Uh, I can, you know, do – there's other ways that I can help teachers. You know, in some schools, in my other school, I had – more flexible dollars than I have here. I had grant dollars. I had other dollars. So I would say, you know what, you want to meet the kid before school, I'll write a little contract and give you a stipend. You know, some way that you acknowledge that it is extra time. In some school systems, these explosive and inflexible kids are not really a problem for the teacher because they just kick them out. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really impacting them that heavily. They don't have the motivation to really work it through. So another way you can kind of encourage that is to have a system that doesn't just build a room where you kick the kids out and they have to sit all day. Um, Some of the planning rooms that are in schools do exactly that. Um, There was one school that I worked with where if a kid showed up for sixth grade science class and didn't have a pencil, they were sent to the planning room for like the rest of the day. So in, in those situations... You, you, collaborative problem solving is the least of your problems. You know, you really have to have a school-wide system that supports kids being in the classroom and teachers being responsible to and responsive to their students. Then it's worth the teacher's time because they can't just kick them out all day. And how's it been going? What uh, what have you been doing to clear the hurdles? Um, it goes well when the teacher you know, will take me up on the offer. It's Even when I offer to take a class for a teacher, it still means they have to leave subplans. Or, you know, teachers don't like getting subs for the most part. It's a hassle. You're never sure if the person in your place delivered the instruction the way you would have. So that's not a perfect solution for teachers. But when I've done that, it's gone, it's gone really well, and teachers have surprises that they weren't expecting. Um, I'm excited for Chittenden County that there's going to be a, a group of people now that you've um, been able to speak to the to that group that you spoke to last 
a couple weeks ago or whenever. Yep. I've had I've had some interesting experiences. I've received some emails from people thanking me for being part of bringing you there um and telling me little stories like people are just trying it and and having some success and some aha. So I think the first thing is just to get people to try it. And then then it almost sells itself in the beginning because if you just sit back for a little bit and do that first step that what's up and let the kid talk it it's very enlightening i guess what i worry about the most is people who try it struggle with it and then throw in the towel and uh retreat to things that are more familiar because they're more familiar that's a valid worry and that's where it you know it's difficult and i'm i'm glad that the website is coming along so beautifully and that you know we're able to spread that word around to folks that there is help out there this you've loaded that website up with pretty much anything somebody would need and then this podcast is really helpful too as much as i've worked with this and tried it i find that i need a tune-up from time to time because you know, I'm 55, and so for a really long time, for for 45 years, you know, I had another kind of way of thinking about things. Um, so it, you kind of have to have a tune-up. You have to listen to this and talk with other people to make it um, to revert, to cause yourself not to revert back automatically. It's really helpful too having Carolyn be invested because when you're intensively involved with a student, sometimes we just have to talk each other off the cliff because there's days that I'm just like, okay, send him home. I'm done. I'm so done with him. And then she'll kind of talk me down off the cliff and maybe take over a little bit and offer a little bit of of, uh, respite or relief because collaborative problem solving really is about relationships too. And in some ways, you know, kids are people and I'm a person, so some kids I can relate to more easily than others. So it is helpful in a school where where you're not alone, where you have one or one or two other people that are willing to step in and, and help out. Sounds good to me. What's your biggest struggle with the model been? And then I'm gonna ask you a very sobering uh, question based on some things that have happened in the news today that you may or may not be aware of. But oh man, uh, I think I did hear about that. Um, I my biggest struggle, biggest struggle. I'm still, and I know I didn't get to stay in the in the talk in Vermont when you were there. So I'm going to sit down with my assistant, and she's going to walk me through how you explain the paperwork. Um, but right uh, now I'm I'm not entirely sure I understand how it's formatted and how that would be used. Um, well, so I've that's... got a good program for you. Oh, you do? Okay, good. I've got a good program. Um, January 23rd, I believe it is, on the web-based program for educators. I'm looking it up right now. I walked people through how you use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. And it's 45 minutes of um, how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It's the January 23rd program. You'll see it, you'll see it right there okay, in, the, in the listening library for educators. And yep. um, people have been telling me that it was an extremely helpful program for them to listen to. Okay, good. I'm glad we mentioned it again then on this program because I think um, it can be confusing. I know my daughter 
who interned with you has been trying to implement this in her inner city school in New York, and that also presented a barrier for her. So that will be helpful. I will listen to it, and I will explain that to Megan and all of you listeners out there in Radio Land, January 23rd, (laughs) if you are also somewhat confused by the paperwork. Um, But other than that, it's, there's nothing not to try. I mean, there's there's no downside. Well, and I like that you said that when you run into trouble, you have somebody talking you off the cliff because it's when we are heated up that our Plan A instincts tend to burst through. Oh, like a lion. Just. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So we have this tragedy in near Cleveland today at oh. Chardon High School in northeastern Ohio where tragically uh, one student has died from his wounds um, being uh, shot by another student who has been arrested. Um, apparently four others were injured. Um hate to end today's program on such a sober note, but... Um, uh, what are your thoughts on when things like this happen in a school? Oh, that is really sobering. I spent some time with one of the people who um, very intensively examined Columbine, which was, of course, historically one of our first of these um, events. Right. And um, I've also read probably one of the most astounding books, that I ever read on this subject, which is called Ghosts from the Nursery, and have spent some time looking. I think his name is Bruce Perry, the gentleman who's very um, involved right now in in talking about the effects of trauma on kids. And as powerful as collaborative problem solving it it is and can be for helping um, our inflexible, explosive kids to manage a school environment, some of the effects of the traumatic situations that way, way too many of our kids are in right now, I'm not. It, it gets really discouraging, Ross. The damage that's done to these kids is so deep and so intractable. Um, we absolutely can make schools more responsive. We absolutely can use trauma-sensitive practices and use collaborative problem-solving. Um, I. I believe that if we all did that 100% of the time, there will still be a child who is so badly abused and so badly neglected that the damage will will exhibit itself someday, somewhere down the road in something as horrible as this. So I don't mean to say we shouldn't keep trying because we should, but I also feel like there's somewhere out there someone has to get a clue about where we're leaving kids in situations that you would not leave your cat in. Um, seems like we make a much bigger deal out of when the Humane Society, you know, cleans out some place where someone was keeping dogs in horrible circumstances, and those are horrible things. But if you've worked in a school, then you know some of the things that have happened to kids, and Child Protective Services couldn't touch it, didn't do anything about it. And those are those. That's another whole area that um, is worth exploring in our society. Do you worry about it in your own building? Absolutely. You're working with younger kids. How much of this is in the forefront of your thoughts I when have you're kids, in the building during the day? 
I, you know, I, I'm actually, weirdly enough, ICS 700 Homeland Security trained because you, after Columbine, and in Vermont there was a school shooting in an elementary school. Yep. It was, you know, the boyfriend of a staff member, so it was an adult. And when I've worked with first responders in some communities, they say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And at the elementary level, it will probably be a domestic dispute. So I don't necessarily worry about a fifth grader bringing a gun, but it's happened. Mm-hmm. Or a knife, that's happened. Not in. I haven't had a gun come to my school, but I've had a knife come once. Um, it was not the child, it was a hunting knife, and the kid wanted to show it to his friends. He wasn't bringing it for violent reasons. Um, but... I do think about it. I think about it more from the perspective, though, of a disgruntled parent. In the elementary school. Yeah, who's on edge, wants their kid, or wants to get revenge or something like that. That's something that I'm more nervous about at the elementary level. On the other hand, I look at some of my students. I look at what we're doing for these young kids, these 9, 10, 11-year-old kids. Um, Medically, these are kids who have some really powerful medical interventions using collaborative problem solving, trying to create trauma-sensitive environments. These kids have occupational therapy body breaks. They have, you know, lots and lots of sensitive programs put into place, and their anger and their frustration will still flare up. Um, They'll punch somebody out on the bus or they'll flip a table in the classroom. And I can see see where down the road that could lead to a a school shooting. I really can see it happening. Mm-hmm. That's why I say I don't mean to be discouraging, but um, and we have to keep trying. We have to keep putting all these uh, child-sensitive practices into place, but we also have to work to keep our kids safer in the world. I've always uh, felt like we are lucky that this doesn't happen more often than it does. Absolutely. I'm actually surprised it doesn't happen more often than it does. Yep. And that, um, I mean, the biggest issue for me, and this is not foolproof, is to bend over backwards to make sure that our ears are wide open and that we are identifying uh, students whose ears we especially need to be wide open for and communicating with them. Yeah. So often, and I, of course, know nothing about what took place near Cleveland today or the student who did the actual shooting or what he was thinking or what he wasn't thinking or what the motive was. But the only way to really stay on top of it, and this is probably what concerns me the most, is to really feel like we um, are on top of what's going on in these kids' heads. Yeah way before something like this happens. And that's by in no way, shape, or form is that me indicting anybody in the school in which the shooting took place. We know nothing about it. We know nothing about their prevention efforts. We know nothing. So it's not um, sitting outside of a situation and saying, um, boy, there's a bunch of stuff they should have done differently. Maybe they did everything spot on. And even when you're doing everything spot on, sometimes things like this happen. Yeah, but if if we don't know what's going on inside the heads of the kids, especially those we're most concerned about, 
um, uh, we're lucky it doesn't happen more often. Absolutely. That's where, you know, the empathy step of collaborative problem-solving can make a huge difference. One of the things those researchers, I can't remember the name of the, I'm bad at that, um, that that I um, spent some time with when they looked into the sort of the patterns that surrounded some of these school shootings. One of the things they did find was that the the distraught students, the shooters, had much a much lower level of social interaction of all kinds mm-hmm. than a typical student. So they kind of mapped out, you know, in the morning a typical kid gets up and at least one parent or family member says good morning or says something to them, you know, and then they talk to their bus driver or they, you know, and then they have teachers talk to them and classmates. And so they sort of mapped out the social interactions. And isolation was definitely a factor in, in Columbine. Um, so the more we can prevent isolation, just making sure we are touching base and listening, as you said, um, to the kids that we know are, are vulnerable, that we could, it's another step we can take to try to stop, as you said, this from happening more often. And out there there are. People are out there listening and touching base with kids. and there sure are. Making trauma-sensitive environments and trying collaborative problem-solving and, and even doing FBAs just to try to, you know, at least get to know a kid a little bit better, and that's probably the reason all those good soldiers out there, why we don't have this happen more often. Julie, thank you for spending time today with us. It was, it was a blast, Ross. It was a good. blast, and I will check out January 23rd. Outstanding. Okay, As for me. the rest of you, I'll be back next week with another program. Get touched up.